Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 96 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle. And I am here, as always, in the vomitorium across the table from my good friend and co-host, Dr. David Noe. How are you feeling? I am a podcasting professional. Really? Yes. You sound very determined. Very, That's right. And prepared. No. Oh, not <laughs> Determined, yes. yes. Prepared, no. This is how you fight through and, uh, you know, you get to the goal. You, you turn the goalpost, the meta, yeah. and you bring it home. Oh, that's very fitting for what we're talking Thank about you. today. Yeah. So yeah. I'm doing okay. You're doing okay, okay, yeah, okay. I'm yeah. dealing with the stresses. I'm flexing like a an old rubber band that you find in the, you know, the tool drawer, something yeah. like that. How about you? I'm, I'm feeling all right. Yeah. Okay. I'm coming off a, kind of a, a long morning and afternoon of teaching, mm-hmm. but um, I'm feeling good. Always feels good to be down here. Dressed semi-formal for you? For me. Not any rips in the jeans? No, not today. Not today. Yeah. Because so, yeah. you were teaching. I was. Filling young minds with all kinds mm-hmm. of uh, classical information, yep. yes? Talking to, uh, it was all mythology today. Excellent. Yeah. Of yeah. the Greek kind, of or the was Greek there kind. some Norse thrown in? Yeah, was, we were doing some Homer. I was, I was, I was spitting out hexameters. Yeah. Yeah. I was you laying were it shucking, down. you were jiving, I you was. were bopping, you were bipping. Yeah, always fun to talk about that kind yes. of stuff. Yep. So Speaking of talking about that kind of stuff, yes. what are we talking about today? Well, do we have a shout out today? No shout out. No shout out. No, people don't want to be recognized for oh. their long years of toil in the trenches. What, what's their problem? I don't know. Okay. They just want us to get right to the um, Maybe that's what it the is. material. They just say, we don't want to bother with that. We, just, nope. we can't wait to get to it. Yep. So what are we talking about today? We're doing uh, our second look at um, at book five. Of yes. The yep. So hopefully we can cover the, the second half of this. And mm-hmm. So more... Um, more games, more right. contests, more prizes. Okay. Um, more, more, uh, more fire. Right. More destruction. Do you have a um, a working title? I was I was hoping maybe you'd share with the audience <laughs> the working title for this episode, so that when we reveal the real title, who says this is going to be the real one? <laughs> well, right. All right. Maybe so, the co-host. They will ooh and ah when they see ah Winkle really pulled it out. Gave okay. this thing a great moniker. Okay, you're putting a lot of pressure on me. Of right course, now, right? that's so, what but, I do. Well, I. I it was difficult looking at what I wanted to cover, what we want to cover today, of trying to find something that encapsulates all of it. Yes. So I came up with uh, Games and Flames. Games and Flames. Yeah. <laughs> Here's another uh, also ran. You know, okay. it's um, it's about Aeneas mm-hmm. and it is, uh, it's games. We could call it the Olympics. That's terrible, That's isn't terrible. it? Terrible. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're, that and games and flames are in the same category. So, exactly. So now, now that we're the pressure, now we have this on tape. We have to. That's right. The pressure is on. I have no idea. Okay. Well, right. we have a little bit of time. All right. When I got to say, what's doubly um, makes it doubly difficult is that I wasn't crazy about this half of the book. No. I like I like the way it ended. I okay. like the drama and and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that stuff. But I I was as I was reading through it this morning, I was wrestling with. There's got to be more here than just these games. Where's the symbolism? What where's about the ship burning? The, well, I'm talking about the, like the the athletic contest. What about the foreshadowing? Well, the, maybe it's there, maybe it's not. I just I was I was falling into that that trap of what we were talking last time. A lot of people see this as yeah, fluff, as yeah, filler, and yeah. I, I need to be I need to be I need you to convince me that I'm wrong so, about this. So now you're the bad cop. I guess so. Usually you're the good cop. I know the optimistic one, the shot glass half full. All right, and maybe I'll, we'll see things as we go through this, but 
I was looking, okay, this is, where's this going? What does this hmm. mean? What is this pointing to? Maybe see things that aren't really there. Yeah. Well, they, you're going to have to, to, uh, okay. to, uh, to redeem, I think, a lot of this for me. All right. Yeah. But we, uh, we have an opening quote, correct? Yes. Shall I read it? Yes. This is from uh, G. Carl Galinsky. Yep. The AJP, right? The American Journal of Philology, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. 1968, long before either of us, you know, debuted in this world. That's right. That's right. And what does the author say? Well, it's from a, a we talk about mediocre titles. This is from an article called Aeneid 5 and the Aeneid. You don't like fully descriptive <laughs> titles? Well, I mean, you could, that should come after the colon, That's right? true. Should, so, um, Aeneid I'm, 5 and the Aeneid. Right. I'm not feeling great about G. Carl. Okay. But, well, but I thought this was an interesting uh, quote. All right. And most of it isn't even from G. Carl. Mm-hmm. So he writes, the fact that Virgil makes Aeneas land in Sicily twice, which we, I think we commented on that yeah, last Yeah, you time, didn't right? like it. I didn't like it. Mm-mm. Has often been criticized as awkward. For this still influential opinion, it may suffice to quote the remarks of H. Nettleship. No, that I like. Yeah, H. Nettleship. Nettleship. That's right. It's almost and, Harry Potter. Right. And I wonder what the um, the H stands for. Or, or the G before G. Carl. Well, I think the H is for Horatius. Horatius. Horatius Nettleship. Nettleship. Oh, now, that's, that's a name. That is a name. That's like someone who, you know, went down in the Civil War. Right. Exactly. Oh, I like that. Um and Edelship writes, it is difficult to suppose that so awkward a combination as this can have entered into the original plan of the Aeneid. So he says, there's no way, Virgil, this was not in the in the final outlines. That is so arrogant, It frankly. is, isn't, though? isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, the greatest, probably, other than Homer, the greatest poet ever. Right. And maybe the most famous epic, maybe even eclipsing the Homeric epics. And he has the gall to say... This wasn't uh, Virgil's original plan. Well, I mean, it does speak to that issue, which we haven't really covered, um, is to what degree is the epic unfinished? Right. Right. So maybe we can give Horatius a, a break here. Okay. All right. Um, going on. As things now stand, it might occur to the reader that the fifth book of the Aeneid would naturally have followed the, the third, as the sixth might naturally have followed the fourth. Virgil had not probably at the time of his death harmonized the Sicilian and Carthaginian episodes in a matter satisfactory to himself. I don't know. I'm not buying that. It's so easy to play, you know, Monday morning armchair poet. Right. Right? (laughs) I just don't buy it. Yeah, exactly. This is coming off very arrogant. Okay, but Galinsky continues, Yes, he does. A closer look, however, at the descriptions of the Trojans' two arrivals in Sicily suggests that they were carefully designed to contrast with and thus to complement each other. So he's... He's pulling it away from Nettleship. That's right. No, no, no. Let's go this way. In book three, by virtue of the efforts of Palinurus, the Trojans are able to avoid the dangers of Scylla and Charybdis. Virgil here follows his Odyssean model, with one important exception. Anchises, and not Aeneas, who is the counterpart of Odysseus, remembers the earlier prophecy about these monstra. According to a pattern of landing which R.B. Lloyd has so perceptively analyzed for book three, the Trojans then land in Sicily, Fessi, and also ignari. Okay. Yeah. Exhausted and 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 ignorant. Right. Right. Um, so okay. So uh, Galinsky pushes back and says, "No, there is a there's a frame here. There's a there is a uh, there's a purpose for mm-hmm. linking these two episodes. Mm-hmm. Right. They the um, the Trojans learn something. They've changed from one stop in Sicily to the next one. Okay. Right. So I'm in favor of that. I am in favor of, of it too. Right. I'm still kind of you know, hedging about the ultimate purpose of book five. Right. But the the two stops in Italy thing doesn't really bother me all that much anymore. No. So what are we going to give the listener today? What are they going to receive if they put in the hard time, the blood, sweat, and tears of listening to this podcast? We're going to come to some kind of conclusion of the place and purpose of book five. Okay. And I think I'd, I'd like to come to some kind of conclusion that, it, that is it filler or is this part of the grand 
uh, wonderful united harmonized plan of this great poet. Yes, of this genius. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tend, here I'll tip my hand, I'm going to tend to the latter explanation. Yes. Even before considering the evidence. <laughs> well, in terms of giving uh, Virgil the benefit of the doubt. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Because in a, time, when, in a time when everyone is contrarian in terms of tearing down the great artistic accomplishments of the past, yes. I want to err on the other side. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that leads me to a little bit of occasional interpretive blindness, mm-hmm. right? I, I uh, My prejudice is, it's great just because it's old. Yeah. No, not, I, I, I got gotcha. you. Not entirely accurate. Right. But it's a reaction to the, it's terrible because it's old. Right. Which prevails so much in discussion of these things. Very well said. You know, I'm, you know, even the observation that um, the purpose of this book is to be a lull before the next mm-hmm. storm. I find that per- persuasive and perfectly acceptable. Oh, uh, yes. Right? That's, that works as a, as a device. On its own terms. Right. That doesn't make it fluff. Exactly. So after the montage where the hero gets into, you know, excellent shape, you don't go immediately into the action. Right. There is a little bit of a lull where he's down at the coffee shop or something, and then the action breaks in unexpectedly. Exactly. You don't move from the montage to the climactic battle scene immediately right so it never know, happens you don't see rocky punching the slabs of beef in the in the butcher shop and then next shot he's in the ring with dolph right you know i'm glad you brought that up oh really yes because uh, unbeknownst to you yeah i queued up a little theme music you did yes that we're going to deal with when we get to dairies and Entellus. oh i i think i know what is it the i'm not going to okay, say no, all right all right, okay, the, all right the listener has to do the hard work right. again the blood sweat and tears of the listening punch some meat gotcha all right so we're giving them theme song yeah we're starting out with foot race foot race then uh then we have a uh, boxing match boxing match and, and then, then archery, archery contest and then some ridiculous <laughs> just a ridiculous trojan game trojan game i still don't fully get myself yeah it's it's like that terrible game is it sorry or trouble oh they're both terrible where the dice is trapped in the plastic globe the pop-o-matic <laughs> i can't even think about it without a sense of revulsion <laughs> even as a kid i hated it why do they put these dice in the in the globe is that supposed to be fun did you you didn't enjoy that pop the, the sound yeah no i got over it after the second pop <laughs> right. Right. So you're, you're equating trouble, the board game, to right. these uh, Trojan games. Oh, sorry. I can't ever keep them straight. They're both horrible. They're both it, terrible games. I think it was the tendency in those days to name games after, what, emotions? <laughs> right, exactly. Trouble. <laughs> sorry. Sorry you have to play this game. <laughs> what happened to Racco? <laughs> Exactly. Well, that's, that's, that's the classic. That's right? a game you can sink your teeth into. Exactly. We're getting ahead of things. Dan. All right. All right. So uh, and then after the uh, after Racco, that's sorry, right. After trouble, archery. After the Trojan Games, whatever it is. Then we got ship burning. Ship burning, mm-hmm. and then an unexpected and uh, grim death. Yes, exactly. Our friend Pelinurus. Right. See how I brought it back down to the um, yes, the macabre. It did in in the the dulcet low tones. Thank you. Yes. So last week we covered the ship race, right? And we got to get to these other events. Yes. And um, I'm hoping we can find something. I'm hoping we can find something more than just um, the lull, a necessary yeah. lull before the action. I want something kind of deeper. I want something that shows me that Virgil has kind of connected a number of dots that uh, might be, might not be just um, you know ultra apparent on the surface. Yes, we're going to find that. Okay, for sure. let's do it. And I think we should start with some reading of the Latin yes. as the foot race uh, commences. What do you think? Let's do it. Okay, so this is line number 286. Okay. 286, and it goes like this. Hoc piasine as misoker thamana tendit, gradramine in campumquem colibus undique curvis, kinge bant silvae mediaquin walla teatri, kiricus erdrat quose multis cum milibus herdros, 
Concesu medium tu lit extructoque recedit. Hic qui forte valent rapido contendere cursu invitat per is animos et primi opponent. We're almost to the names of the individuals here. And an unfinished line. Undique, undique conumeni unt el crimex tique sicani. Nisus et el realus primi. Unfinished line, number hmm. 294. So the, uh, one of a handful, right? Jeff, Jeff. What? What? Usually after that you say something like, what? very nicely done. Oh, very I'm so... I'm so used to it. Come that, on. Right, sorry. Very nicely done. Oh, Dave. thank you for right. noticing. I was, I was, I was too distracted by the unfinished line. All right. Because, I mean, there's a handful of these in the Aeneid, right? Yeah, and, a couple dozen, maybe. Right. And when some people talk about the the unfinished nature of the Aeneid, some, I, I'm of the opinion that's really what that means. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily there's these grand things missing. Correct. Right? A few unpolished lines. Right. Shall I give the Lombardo translation? Let's hear of that? it, please. This contest done. That refers to the um, the ship race. Uh, Pius Aeneas strode to a grassy field ringed by hills that formed a natural stadium. Reminds me of um, kind of Olympia. Yes. So that picture mm-hmm. here. Yep. And thousands came with him. Here the hero took his place on a raised platform and invited all comers who had enough spirit to compete, compete in a sprint for the prizes set forth. A crowd of Teucrians and Sicanians stepped up to enter, first and foremost, Nisus and Euryalus. Yeah. And that's that. In, that's the unfinished line. That's right. First and foremost, primi, first among the pack. Mm-hmm. So now we have the competitors. Now there are a number of other competitors mentioned, mm-hmm. right? There is this uh, individual um, Salius, right? I think who's mentioned. Yes. There's a Helamus and a Panopes, and um, you know we get the names of some other runners. Yeah, uh, and um, I think it's interesting that Virgil at the end of that list says, and many more whose names Oblivion hides, which is how Lombardo translates. So there are many more that he can't even get to the names here. Right. Yeah. Yeah, forgotten by this point. Mm-hmm. And then we get this this really wonderful kind of play-by-play. Yeah, the Vin Scully, as you were saying. It is saying. another Vin Scully when he talks mm-hmm. about the... Uh, yeah. Should I read the Lombardo translation? Well, before, I yeah. would love that. But before, let's just talk a little bit about track and field. Because yeah. last time we were saying that one of our favorite sports for both of us mm-hmm. are the track and field events. Definitely. And I have to say far more the track than the field. Oh, I, really, I, I love them both. You do? I do. It's hard for me to get into shot put, hammer throw, and javelin. I, I like the jumping. Like the long jump and the high jump. Okay. I find the pole vault... Fascinating. The pole vault is fascinating. I'll, I'll grant that. Right. But they don't they don't move fast enough for me. Really. I don't want to wait around for eight people to go through the pole vault I got to you. find out who won by a quarter inch. Right. I want to see you know nine point nine five or something like that. I got gotcha. you. They, they blaze down the track. I totally hear. I, I hear. And I really like one of the things I really like about track and field is is um, you know the original um, you know. The original purpose for these was if you could do these things well, you would be a great soldier. Of right? course. And all of track and field is based on military training. Military 100%. training. 100%. Right. And so the, the Olympic Games was a way of doing war without doing war. Exactly. Right. And But they were connected to virtues within the communities. Right. So that's why. Right. Where that's, I like that kind of thing better than, say, ping pong. Okay. Right. What, what is the skill of ping pong? What does that relate to? You what say it's detached virtue? from normal life? Yes, I do. I, I've never, I'm, I love ping pong. Okay. I'm pretty good at ping pong. Oh, really? But I've never used my ping pong skills. Huh. I've never applied that. No, no right? ping pongery. Well, it's but based. running and jumping. I mean, come on. Yeah, but it's based on, on, it's table tennis. So it's based on real tennis, which also has no everyday um, application. Exactly. Unless you're the parent of multiple children and you're trying to get them all on the bus at the same time. Ah, there you go. There, maybe, maybe that's where that, that comes into play. There's some analog. Right. Uh, yeah, so I mean, games with that um, that involve kind of chasing a ball around, hitting it, throwing it, rolling it. Right. I can enjoy, but I, there's something about, there's something kind of just raw and I agree. primal about track and field. It's the most basic human activity is running or walking. Yeah. Right? And anyone can compete. You don't need any special 
equipment. You don't need any special training. You're True. not going to do very well if you don't train. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but it is very basic. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting that the, the Greeks and Romans, to my knowledge, never developed any ball sports. They didn't, did they? No. And and other cultures, you know, that one might consider primitive, you know, at least ancient, like the uh, the Native Americans, they developed something kind of like a, a lacrosse akin game. to lacrosse. Right, right. A high-speed, brutal, uh, highly skilled uh, ball-based game. Mm-hmm. Nothing like that. That's I've never thought about that. And I don't know why. Right? Yeah. I don't know why. Lacrosse wasn't really um, practiced for war, so far as I know. Right. Some of the skills probably transferred. Um but they didn't have that. They didn't have it. I mean, they threw things. They just didn't chase after them once they threw it. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, I love track and field. Um, it's interesting that we've known each other um, yes. for this long. We've never kind of shared that uh, Yeah. That uh, that affinity. And, and like uh, Aeneid Book 5, we live in the golden era of track and field. In our lifetime, we have had Usain Bolt mm-hmm. and uh, um, Florence Griffith Joyner. Yeah. Flojo. And now Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, yes. this Jamaican woman who is just unbelievable. unbelievable how dominant she is in that sport. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. I, and I, I also, I also, I, I think I prefer sports that are measured in distance and time. Then, no, then or point the, totals? Then like a referee or a judge, which I becomes, see. the subjectiveness makes me like go a little bit like, eh. Despite the fact that you yeah. like baseball so much. I do like baseball a lot, mm-hmm. right? Um, but. I think my favorite sport to to watch is is track and field. Mm-hmm. We may be getting a little far afield here. We might. So we, let's let's bring this back but, around. But unlike the competition with Nisus Neurealis, the the competitions that we've mentioned, they mostly have happy outcomes. There's a loser, there's a winner, mm-hmm. but someone is a champion. This has a grim element. This a, does a grim and ugly um, undercurrent. Right, and I think that's when we talk about maybe foreshadowing tragedy to come. Maybe that's where. Maybe that's where this uh, fits in. Right. So can I read a little bit of the uh, Krizak, the Len Krizak translation? Yep. As Aeneas speaks to the crowd, he says, uh, Aeneas spoke out to them, take these words to heart and mind. You shall have a prize when you depart. To each, two steel-headed Gnosian arrows brightly buffed and a chaste axe with double blades to carry off. All these for every man. The first three places, though, with more and wear pale olive wreaths about their brow. A coarser, well-caparisoned goes to first place. Next earns a quiver full of arrows made in Thrace, an Amazonian quiver hanging from a wide gold belt that's jewel-clasped. Third should be satisfied to carry off this Argive helmet. Again, just acknowledging how difficult that is to to put this into a, into rhyming couplets. Yes, right? yes it is. <laughs> yeah. So he spoke, each took his place, and at the sudden signal broke, sprinting from the start line like storm clouds they burst forth. Focused, every man thought he would finish first. It's Nisus flashing far ahead of everyone. So that's the beginning, Nisus. He takes off. Yes, the, the young runner. man of the two. Mm-hmm. And he is uh, quite literally the front runner. Mm-hmm. And how does the action develop, uh, Vin Scully-like, from that point? All right, shall I pick it up with Lombardo's? With yes, please. So, um, next, but far, but far behind, was Salius, and trailing behind him, Euryalus ran third. Helimus was in fourth, and hard on his heels was Diores, leaning over his shoulder. In a longer race, Diores would have passed him, or they would have finished dead even. They were in the final stretch, tiring as they came up to the line, when Nisus had the bad luck to slip on a patch of grass wet with the blood of slaughtered oxen. Ah, sacrificial gore. Right. Um, he was already celebrating his victory when he lost his footing and fell face first into the filthy gore from the sacrifice. All right, now maybe this is just me, but I can't help but to, to picture the scene, read the scene, and not see a little bit of kind of dark comedy in it. And I don't know if that was, that's Virgilian, um, but the fact that he's he reminds me of, of a running back, you know, kind of hot dogging before he actually reaches the end zone. Oh yeah, where, where's the moment where you fumble, right? right? 
Um, and just the fact that he, he he slips and just wipes out as a kind of almost physical comedy there. Yes. Um, but I, again, I don't know, if, like from a Roman perspective, if they would have seen the the kind of the ridiculousness of that scene. Well, right? I, I don't think I don't know. I can't say you are much more, I think, um, in favor of dark comedy than the average individual. Maybe the Coen Brothers, right? Yes, are uh, I'm sure your favorite filmmakers, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think they would have been in mind of what's coming in book nine. So it's not it's dark, but it's not so much comedy. Now in book nine, we'll, we'll deal with it when we get there. Nisus and, Uri- and Urialis die. Yeah, in a midnight raid, mm. and it's a bloody gory mess. Uh, and, yeah. and this anticipates it. So I think it's kind of disgusting that he he slips in what he slips in. Yeah. Um, but it foreshadows the coming doom in uh, book nine. Right. So can you explain more for the listener? What does this mean to, you know, to slip in sacrificial gore? Well, I, I think it, it's a, it certainly has kind of the whiff of sacrilege about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a poem that is so interested and invested in rituals being done correctly and, okay. and by the book. To kind of to slip in the gore of a of a recent sacrifice seems um, even though it it seems Virgil presents it as accidental. Right. It seems it, it's like Acteon stumbling upon Diana. Mm-hmm. It's about the guy who holds to steady the Ark of the Covenant as it falls off. It's yes. just kind of like there's nothing really, there's it, there's an innocence about it, but a line has been crossed. And right. It's almost like okay. He's gonna pay for this, right? Right. That's right. that's how I see it. So yeah. this was a sacrifice that was done in the meadow, mm-hmm. right? Nisus does not know it's there, but maybe the um, the sacrificer, the sacrificant, didn't clean up after himself. Is that implicit? Is all of the entrails, the intestines of the animal, supposed to be consumed on the altar? I am. Is this an instance, in other words, of an incomplete sacrifice? I, I don't. That's really interesting. I don't know. I mean, it made me think of. Of um, like the theater space where the you know the, the altar is at the center of the orchestra, mm-hmm. and you know there would be a sacrifice to Dionysus before the festival would go forward. My, my sense was always that the, the the sacrifice would be wet with and tainted with blood as the performance went on. Right, but I I don't know where that's coming. Just the the, the visual aspect of the sacrifice uh, that's always there that tells the audience, yes, you're watching a play, yes, you're watching a running race, but it's this is an act of sacred to Dionysus. Yes, exactly. I do wonder though, why are those elements there on the grass? Yeah, right. So this would have been, you know, to be a little graphic, the animal is gutted, right? Its mm-hmm. intestines are removed. The thigh bones typically are wrapped with the fat of the innards, so the, the femurs, and then it's placed in the middle of the, the blazing hot coals. Yep. And the smell, aroma, is supposed to be pleasing to the gods. Yes. But why is all of this you know, liver and intestines and pancreas, why is this all kind of rotting on the grass right, there. Right, right, right. Exactly. That's out of place. Right, because there's not a, a um, I mean, a sacrifice, like, before this match is not mentioned. Like, you know, what is it doing there? And it, and exactly. Was it, is it it's left over from something? Is that an act of sacrilege itself that this is... It's possible. It shouldn't be there. Yeah. Right. Can I read a little bit of the Krizak here yeah. on the same episode? But then the end in sight and runners panting for the finish, Nisus slips in sacrificial gore. The grass and ground all soaked and slicked in slaughtered steer blood, slime and crud. No matter how exultant here, the boy could not hold on the flailing, tottering steps. He tries to print the ground with fail, and down he slips, face down in all the dung-mixed mire of sacrifice. Oh, that's that's pretty good. I it mean, is. Oh, that, that alliteration there with the S's, it just it sounds gross. Slippery and it's disgusting. Sound, yes. And he ends up face down. In the mire of sacrifice, but mm-hmm. it's mixed in with the dung of the animal. Yeah. Oh. So this is an awful thing for Nisus. Yeah. And what happens next? The emergence of friendship, right? Right. Um, 
And so even in that, uh, as Lombardo translates, but he did not forget Euryalus or his love for the boy. He slid through the slime into the path of Salius and knocked him head over heels onto the hard-packed sand. So he takes another runner out right. in the hopes that his uh, um, his friend will, will win. That's correct. And I, I was mistaken earlier, if the listener is listening carefully, which of course they are, um, I said that uh, Nisus was the younger one. No, Euryalus is the younger, is the younger one. one. Nisus is the elder, right? right? right. From, he rose from where he lay and smack in Salius's way, he threw himself. And what happened to Salius? Well, Salius goes, he goes down. And then uh, Euryalus shot ahead and thanks to his friend, flew on to victory to the sound of applause. Right. So and it's cheating. It's, it's, it's cheating. Is it? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think the... the um, the, like if I think of the Olympic Games, yes, I there, was just thinking there the were same lots thing. of you know these these fighting events where it's basically no holds barred, right? Right. But you're thinking of the ancient Olympic Games, right? Yes. The pancration. Yes, exactly. The, the everything goes, right? Sort of event, which is not a running race, right? No. I mean, if if it was an everything goes and a running race, wouldn't you be tackling your opponents at the very beginning and trying to take them out along the way? I wouldn't say necessarily because yeah. only if everybody does that would you have an advantage. Right, that's true. That's, that's why true. You're, you're tackling Winkle. The other guy <laughs> is sprinting up. Is you know down at the end already. Right. Right. So in the recent World Championships, this uh, incredible U.S. hurdler, uh, Devin Allen, mm -hmm. he's running the 110 meter hurdles, and he was disqualified. Qualified for leaving the blocks too soon, a false start, even though it's a matter of milliseconds. Yeah, yeah, wow. But this is a different kind of cheating, right? Nisus sticks his leg out to trip up Salius <laughs> so Euryalus can win. So, so is Nisus doing something uh, noble? We commend him for that? I guess, um, I mean, in terms of um, you know, doing something for his friend, right. I guess that's admirable. Yeah. But in terms of kind of maybe the rules of the game, he's, he's, a, he, he's a cheater. Yeah. Right. Well, I suppose. I don't know if there uh, were any rules given by Aeneas. No. And then when it turns out that everybody seems to get a trophy anyway. Right. right? <laughs> Takes, it lowers the stakes it a little bit. It does. Okay. Right. So, um, uh, Salius, the guy who gets tripped, right. he, he, he cries bloody murder and says, hey, come on. He can't do that. And, you know, I need a prize. And so right. Aeneas, you know, who just wants, he, Aeneas is kind of a people pleaser. He says, "Fine." He goes. He says, "Okay, I'll give you this 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 lion skin I have in this this box over here." Right. I just happened to have with me. Right. Yeah. And, and then Nisus sees Salius get something. Well, he goes, "Hey, if I hadn't slipped, I would have won." Right. And so Nisus goes, "Yeah, here's here's a shield." Right. right. So <laughs> everybody gets this stuff. And it's a Krizak. Yeah. Uriella shoots past and wins. He takes first place, jogging on through to cheers. That's got to make Salius angry, right? Oh yeah. He's loafing. He pulled up at the end. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, like you in the Chicago Marathon. Oh yeah. Right? I was pulling up at about mile 16. <laughs> <laughs> then Salius comes up roaring, railing, fills the theater's assembly, dins the front row elders. Where's his prize? Yeah. That Nisus' cheating stunt has stolen. Most back Euryalus, his manly grace and tears, show finally in his form and handsome face. Diores backs him loudly, too, for having come in third. Uh, he knows he'll lose his accidental palm if Salius has the highest prize bestowed on him. Exactly. So let's remind ourselves of the prize. Correct. The gold medal is a horse. Okay. Uh, silver medal is a quiver of Thracian arrows. Right. And third prize is a helmet. Isn't there any um, cauldron that's never been torched on the stove? What? Whose bottom we don't have to scrub with that scouring pad? Oh, I, I, what are you talking I'm about? I'm talking about the the prizes for the regatta. Did you oh, already forget that? Completely. They, they, there's so many prizes in this book, Dave. I, I okay. can't keep them straight. All right. Right. So Diori says, I'm walking, I'm going home with that helmet. Yeah, and I'm right. happy that Nisus <laughs> stuck his leg out and, and tripped up Salius because otherwise I'm not in third place. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep. And what does Salius get? Uh, Salius gets a, a lion skin. Yeah, a Gaetulian cat's pelt. Where, where's, where's that? Where's Gaetulia? Where's, where's Gaetulia? Why do you have to ask me that? What uh, do I look like? The I don't answer know. guy? I don't know. We don't have to look it up. It's, it's, it's someplace where you'd find lions. 
Okay, so I'll look it up. Turns out it's in the Sahara by the Atlas Mountains. Okay. Are there, did you find lions there? There is a kind of Barbary lion. Okay. It's extinct now, but it was a smaller than the large African lion. That's what you usually think of. Like yeah, I'm yeah. not looking this up. This is legit. All so right. the Barbary lion, I don't know exactly when it came, became extinct, but it was um, it was uh, alive during historic times, mm. times of the Romans. Okay. It's okay. kind of a dark mane, I think. All right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, Salius gets one of those. So, Aeneas has picked one of these up along the way. I, I, oh, come on! I don't know. While he was in Carthage, I, maybe. I imagine Dido gave him a number of presents. I guess so. I guess so. Mm-hmm. Just, it all the piling up of these things just gets kind of ridiculous. To maybe a while. Maybe these were gifts at the um, the wedding shower. Maybe, maybe. Okay, I'll buy that. You thought of that? Yeah. So we got we we, we got to keep moving, Dave. Okay. Um. So I think that um. In terms of like looking for symbolism, foreshadowing, the slipping in the gore right. foreshadows uh, a dark end for Nisus and Euryalus yes, coming in up in a, in a few books. Right. Okay. All right. What's next? What's next is we move from that to the boxing match. I love this one. I do too. I really enjoyed this. I, yeah. I don't I don't know if it has anything to do with kind of connecting dots to fate and tragedy or things to come, but it's, it's a great scene. I don't think it's connecting dots, but I do think there's a very important moral lesson that underlies it. Okay. That has to do with the superiority of age and experience mm. over youth and foolishness. Do you see in that kind of the, that uh, Roman reverence for elders that you tend not to see amongst the Greeks. Yes, the most maiorum, yeah. right? What is morality? It's what our uh, ancestors have always done. That is the Roman answer, right? Right. And so the elder boxer Antellus, is it Antellus? Antellus, yes. Yeah, Antellus, the descendant of Hercules, he represents age and experience and wisdom. And I think we can connect this to Aeneas. This is a little bit of Aeneas's coming of age now that his father is dead. Ah, okay. Right? Had mm-hmm. it been the younger man, Darius, who won the boxing match, we wouldn't see character development in Aeneas. We mm. would see hope and optimism and youthful strength winning out over seasoned experience. Okay. You know, connecting Aeneas. Now he's the grown man, even though Anchises is dead. Right. Okay. I, I mean, in this, in this book, I still don't see a lot of growth in Aeneas. He's still kind of the bland man. Hmm. He's a man bland on the, <laughs> on the stand. He's a, he's a bland man on the stand handing out prizes. Okay. Right. All right. So I see this as, again, as I think as a foreshadowing towards, I think, a Roman virtue. I'm n- I'm not so convinced about Aeneas' own maturation yet. Okay. All right. So okay. here we got to key up some, uh, some music to get us in the mood for the coming boxing Let's match. hear it. steps of the Philadelphia Art Museum. Yeah, and you want to drink some glasses of raw eggs, raw don't eggs you? and punch some butcher meat. Yeah, yes. and, and shout for your uh, vaguely Italian affianced or wife. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, there we go, right. <laughs> you had to do that. That's some that great is, 70s music there, don't you is, think? Man. You can even, you can even hear, feel a little bit of that disco swing in yeah, it too, right? Yeah, you can. Yeah, right. right. So if, if, you, if you're if you sitting with, still to that, I think you're made of stone. Right, with your fish trapped in your shoes, your disco <laughs> shoes. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. In the platform. So let's set it up then. We've got two uh, incredible boxers. All right. But first, it seems like there's only going to be one. Okay. Because Darius steps out. He's the clear favorite. Uh, Virgil tells us that back at Hector's funeral games, 
he beat the pulp out of somebody okay. and, and left him to die. Right. And so he comes out, and I love this detail. He's out there flexing. He's shadow boxing. He's 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 doing it up for the crowd. Right. right? So he's like Muhammad Ali. Right? Very much he's so. He's a showman. Yes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Are you a fan of boxing? I'm not. No, I, really. And I, I never really got into it. I, okay. I, I like I like it. I like sports. I like I like kind of the drama sports and reading about sports. But like watching a boxing match is never no. It doesn't do it for you. No. Okay. Um. And so he's out there. He's 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 popping his pecs, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and the crowd's going crazy. Right. And uh, nobody wants to step up. Yeah. Right. And I think the, the the prize here is like an ox with gilded horns. That's correct. And uh, Virgil says that at one point, Darius just puts his hand on the horn and says, hey, listen, if nobody's going to challenge me, I'm walking home with my prize. That's right. And, uh, and uh, you know, the, the gilding, right, is, is very interesting because the, the, the gold has to be liquefied, takes mm-hmm. incredible heat. You got to get the, the horns of the animal in that somehow. Yeah. Which is difficult, I would imagine. I have never thought about the, well, what you, the process for gilding horns would be, but man. You can't, you can't <laughs> anesthetize the animal. There's nothing like that, right? Right. I don't know. I don't think you can apply it with something because I think it would become um, hardened so rapidly, right? It would t- return to a solid right. instead you, of a liquid. You can't, you can't dip it like a, like a soft serve cone into the hard shell chocolate. But right? you have to do that <laughs> with the steer and his horns. Right. And of course, it has to be a full grown steer, right? Because mm-hmm. otherwise, the horns are going to. Uh, change shape, so right. it's going to be um, very challenging. This sounds like a, something I would never want to do. Well, there's so probably a, a reality TV show coming out pretty soon, you know. <laughs> Gilded Horn? Gilded Horn. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know there's a reality TV show for glass blowing? No, there's not. I kid you but, not. Was it competitive glass Competitive blow- glass blowing. <laughs> I can't remember the name of it, thankfully. I've never watched a full episode, but it's, uh, it's true. Wow. Yeah. So why not? So uh, why not for Gilded Horn? Gilded Horn, right. Mm-hmm. So... But finally, um, Intel, uh, Intellus is the... Intellus. Right. So, Akestes... So, so, can you tell us about Intellus? Oh. <laughs> so, the, sh- the scene shifts to the crowd where Akestes, who's kind of the host of the Trojans um, here in Sicily, and he turns to old Intellus and says, listen, like, you know, why don't you step up? You know, you were, you were a great boxer back in the day. Right. Why not you? And Intellus says he's, he's hesitant because he says, you know, look, I'm old, I'm slow, um, but then he kind of... He kind of pep talks himself. He says, yeah. hey, "Listen, but you know what?" He goes, um, "You know, don't even try to lure me with these prizes because I would do it for you know the, for the glory of the it. Plain right? glory. So I don't need no stinking prizes. That's man. right. It's Acestes who goads him into it. Yep. Actually, uh, trusty Acestes. Can I read a little bit of the Sleezak there? Yeah, yeah. Did I say Sleezak? You did Sleezak. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you said you meant Kreezak. I meant Kreezak. Yes. That's the land of the lost. That's right. The Sleezak. reference there. <laughs> At this, Acestes castigates and tell us who sat by him on a green and grassy couch. Once you were bravest of all heroes, though in vain, and yet, Antellus, you'll allow a prize like this to get away without a fight? Now, where's immortal Eryx, once your famous master? What of your heroics known through all Trinacria, your spoils suspended in your house? And the response? And as Lombardo puts it, Antellus says, It's not that my love of glory has given away to fear, but I'm old and slow and don't have any juice. I'm all worn out. If I had the youth, that gives this rascal his confidence. If I had my youth back, I wouldn't need any prize. No pretty to bull to take me to fight. I don't care about prizes. Mm. And by that time, he's kind of convinced himself to do it. Right. Right. So then what he does is he takes these these um, these boxing gloves that uh, Eric's used to have. They have their own name. But, right. Yes. Um, and he throws I mean, I mean their own story, their own backstory. Right, right. These famous boxing gloves. He's yeah. got old man strength. Old man strength. Is what uh, Intellis has. Yeah. And he's got he's got wisdom and 
and pride, right? Mm-hmm. He's not going to literally rest on his laurels, right? The expression of the grassy green couch he's sitting upon. Right. He stands up and he goes for it. Right. And so he throws in these 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 giant um, boxing gloves that has their own legend behind it. Right. As a clear way of kind of, um, uh, you know, literally throwing down a kind of gauntlet. Exactly. Right? And a so, glove slap, if you will. Yes. Right. And says to Darius, deal with this. So right? so who is this Eric's and what's going on? So Eric's is... Um, well, let me just let me read the Lombardo translation. Okay, uh, he explains it. So, Intel throws these gloves in, and he's his, his voice boomed out. He says to Darius, "What if you have seen the gloves of Hercules in the grim fight on this very shore? Your half brother Eryx wielded these weapons. You can still see on them spattered blood and brains, and stood against great Hercules with them. I used them too when my blood was hotter, before jealous old age sprinkled my gray in my hair." But if Trojan Darius objects to these gloves, and if that sits well with Pius Aeneas, and because he's approved, we can even, we can even up the fight. So Eryx is, um, well, as uh, Akesi says, was uh, Antelus's master. Okay. A great fighter. Right. Right. Semi-divine, I believe, mm-hmm. or uh, a demigod. I'm right. forgetting his parentage. Yes. But um, he looms as this great, um, this great warrior, this great fighter. Right. Yep. And so they decide, okay. The, the Joe Lewis, you might say. The Joe Lewis? Of, well, you know, of, of boxing. Right, right. So Joe Lewis, right, and um, Sonny Liston, mm-hmm. these are legendary guys. Right. right. Joe Lewis maybe the best of all time. A Michigander, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Detroit. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so he's, he's the revered one, Eric's. And then the, there's the younger fellows, right? The, 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 uh, is this Tyson? I would say Tyson is like Darius. Right? Yeah, yeah. A force of nature. Uh, but some of the older guys never would have fought him. But he's, you know, it's a lot of bravado, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to be careful what I say. It's Mike Tyson after all. Right. <laughs> if you listen to some of his interviews, he says, I'm, I'm Attila the Hun. I'm, a, I'm Alexander the Great. He's got this long list of classical references and historical references, uh, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know if he, if he really knows a lot about these individuals. <laughs> he's an educated man. Uh, but there's just tremendous bravado. This is Darius, right? Right. Right, right. And then Intella steps forward. Yes. And says, we'll do it without gloves? We'll do it. He said, we'll even it up. So they both, uh, they both. Uh, I think a, a pair of gloves for each of them that are very similar are brought up for both men. And so they're both wearing uh, similar gloves. So he doesn't have the big lead-lined, right. massive clubs that Eric's used to wear. Right. So it's a, it evens it out, at least to the, to the degree of the equipment that they're using. Okay. And speaking of equipment. Yes. It's time for the ads. This episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by the Moss Method for Learning Greek. Dave, tell us about the Moss Method. Thanks, Jeff. Well, the Moss Method is a program I've developed based on the work of Charles Melville Moss, uh, 1893. And it's a way to go from neophyte, little or no knowledge of Greek, to... Erudite. That's correct. So I've taken uh, the last 30 years of my studying and teaching Greek, and I've compressed it into this course using this first Greek reader by Charles Melville Moss. Interesting, really interesting stories. We were just talking about Hercules. Uh, There's a great story in here about Hercules trying to decide between virtue and vice as he sets off on his uh, adventures. Mm -hmm. There are excerpts and adaptations from Plato, from uh, Lucian, of Samosota, from um, all different kinds of authors, Xenophon, Herodotus, really interesting. And this course I've put together, it features four different modules. Uh, One module costs you $325. We're running a sale presently. Gets you 40 videos, lots of assignments, and weekly interaction with me. Fantastic. So if, uh, if, if people are interested, they can go to mossmethod.com. That's correct. And they'll find some free stuff there, right? Lots of free stuff. Okay. Yeah, probably more than 100 free instructional Greek oh, videos. Oh, wow. Okay. On a wide variety of authors, New Testament, Old Testament, and lots of classical guys. So they can kind of test drive it and That's right. a bit. That sounds yeah, great. Yeah. yeah. Church Fathers as 
well. And if they like what they see, then they sign up. Fantastic. And every Friday, what do they get? They get them office hours, right? That's correct. So they they meet with your your uh, your your kind of um, uh, ne'er do well assistant. Yeah, my right? flacky. No, wait, no, that's not. They meet no, you. No, they meet with me you. personally. That's the right. ne'er do well me. Yeah. <laughs> and we look at uh, you know New Testament. We look at classical authors. We look at Homer, Sophocles, whatever you want. Really, it's a it's a time for anyone who's in the course to meet over Zoom. And uh, form some good friendships, people all over the world, and ask questions. Fantastic. MossMethod.com. Check it out. This episode is also brought to you by the good people at Ratio Coffee. Jeff, did you have coffee this morning? I did. Yes. And uh, did it come from some squirty plastic machine pumped out of a giant larger machine at the rate of 1000 per hour and sold for nine ninety five? I wouldn't dream of doing that no, anymore. No. No way. Not anymore. You've no, turned a corner, haven't I have, you? Right. I, I started with the Ratio 6, which is a great machine. Right. I've upgraded to the Ratio 8, which is a wonderful machine. It's it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it just, I mean, at the end of the day, it just makes the best cup of coffee um, consistently every single morning. So you're not going down to Barstucks or the Beagle Brunery? No. no. I've, I've never set foot in those places again. Right. I've seen the light. Okay. Yeah. So tell us about the Bloom stage, which I understand is... Probably your favorite stage. It is. I get I, sometimes I get stuck there myself, just in my mind. Right. But the bloom stage is where get all, stuck there. all that that CO two gas is off gassed, mm-hmm. and that just leaves for um. The, the, I think the real magic to happen is in the brew stage where it all comes together. But without right. without that bloom stage, though, it's a it's a it's a lesser yeah. product. Yeah. Making coffee is tricky, and the bloom stage is what allows the off gassing, like you like right. you said. So let's say that uh, the customers are interested. You know, the audience, I mm-hmm. should say. I've already turned them into customers. They're interested in checking out this coffee, but yep. they're not familiar too much with the stages. Maybe they need a kind of coach, maybe like a stage coach. Could you do that for them? <laughs> coach them through the stages? Yeah. Right. Well, you, you've got three stages. You okay. got the boom, the boom, the bloom, <laughs> the brew, and then it's ready. It's very, okay. it's very simple. And how many buttons do you have to push to get this ratio to work and get rid of the brackish tang? It's just, it's one tap. You, one tap? You brush your finger against it and the whole thing sets in motion. And you got to stand there and watch it and fiddle with levers and so forth? Not at all. Okay. Right? If you, you, it's fascinating to watch, but you can step away and within okay. minutes you have your perfect cup of coffee. You come back. Yep. Yeah. I had a great pot this morning. Nice. Delicious coffee made in my ratio eight. Yes. Oyster color with... The walnut accents. Fantastic. So let's say the listener wants to score one of these heirloom type of machines. Yep. What should they do? They should go to ratiocoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O. Um, you can find your, your favorite machine, the six or the eight. You put in this coupon code, A-N-C-O-V-4. All right. And that will get you 15% off either machine. Check it out. You will not regret this. You won't. This episode of Ad Nauseam is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing celebrating this year their 50th anniversary with their offices in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Cambridge, Massachusetts. These guys um, are my favorite publisher around. Uh, they've got such a huge, wide selection of every corner of the classical world you could ever be interested in, as well as um, many other different uh, disciplines and historical eras from around the world, from religion to philosophy to art, architecture, literature. Hackett is the place to be. Dave, mm. uh, what do you like about Hackett? Well, many of the same things that you mentioned. I like the the broad sweep of titles that they offer. I like the fact that they're inexpensive. You know, I'm a classicist, right? That, yep. That's where I um, I uh, earn my bones, as they say. But I like the fact that Hackett has such a, a breadth of things to read. So I'm looking at the website right now, Seven Myths of Military History uh, by a guy named uh, John Hostler. And right next to it, Women in Colonial Latin America. Hmm. That's a really interesting, a really interesting subspecialty. Yeah. And, you know, I like to read lots of classics, but I also read around a little bit. Right now I'm reading something about um, 
the the establishment of the British Empire, you know, Sir Francis Drake and mm-hmm. so forth. And I like to read uh, adventure stories and such. Hackett has pretty much all of that that you could desire. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I echo all of that. And listener, if you want to take advantage of this, um, check out HackettPublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T Publishing.com. Um, just search around their, their huge selection. Find what you want. And in that uh, coupon code box, type in AN2022, and you'll get two wonderful um, uh, gifts. You'll get 20% off your entire order, and you'll get free shipping. Yes. Check it out. You will not regret this either. No. Okay, Jeff, as we resume the action here, we yes. are right in the thick of the fight, aren't we? Right. And so in this, this boxing match, it, I mean, it plays out like uh, any great sports movie. Yes. It's kind of a, uh, a come-from-behind victory. Yes. So Intel is, I mean, he, has, he is old and he's slow, and uh, Virgil describes him as, as, uh, as a heavy out, heavyweight out there. He's got a longer reach, but he, he's, uh, he's, um, he's kind of holding back, and right. Darius is just flailing. Right. So I'm, I'm imagining a kind of like a, a Tyson versus a, uh, an, a Muhammad Ali. Some much taller, larger individual. Right, right. exactly. And it reminds me, of, you know, Ali had the strategy, the rope-a-dope strategy, mm-hmm. where he, he could take all these punches and it wouldn't affect him that much, and he just let the other guy tire himself out. That's right. And then you just come come at them like an atom bomb. Yeah, yeah. fly like a woodpecker, sting like a mosquito. Was that, was exactly, that his... Uh, that's exactly what he said. Okay. Yeah. Then father-like, Anchises' son, I'm reading from Krizak, found equal boxing gloves for both and tied them on. Quickly, those dreadnought fighters balanced on their toes and put their fists up high, prepared for deadly blows. Dodging each punch, they keep their heads aloft, back far while hand to hand. They mix it up and start to spar. Relying on his youth, one dances round, dissembling. That's Darius. The other, bulking, massive, strong, is slowed by trembling knees. His big frame shakes, he gasps, and pants in pain. Right, so it looks like it's. It seems to be clear the way this fight is going. It's 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 curtains for Intellus. Yes, youth is going to get it in yeah, the end. Right, they launch a hundred hasty blows, but all in vain. Rib cages rumble, chests drum down. The punches rain as fists go flickering around their ears and brows in bunches. Hard rights rattle both their solid jaws. Yeah, that's that's good. You ever been in a fist fight? Uh, in elementary school. Yeah, 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 but not not really since then. No, no. <laughs> neither have I. I. Apparently, to get punched in the face by another individual. I mean, to be really punched solid. Solidly in the face by bare knuckles. Yeah, that's a apparently a really shocking experience. Yes, and I'm glad to say it's never happened to me. Me, me either. Right? Mm-hmm. No. Um, yeah, I, I can't. Can never see myself getting into into the ring. It's, yeah. Well, maybe just, after we wrap up this episode, you and I can go a few we'll, rounds. We'll spar out in the parking sure. lot. Sure. Right. Right. But then Intellis comes back. Okay. Right. And um, he starts. He starts. Um, this uh, is Lombardo. This right? is Lombardo. Right. So um, Intellis showed a high right hand and stepped in for a, a hard downward blow. Darius saw it coming and twisted out of the way until it spent all of his force on the air and fell heavily onto the ground. So, he, And he, uh, Virgil uses a, the symbol of a, of a pine falling right. to the ground. And the crowd gets on their feet. They're well, shouting. Well, read us some of the simile. Okay, like a vaulted pine uprooted and falling to the ground on Arimanthus or Great Mount Ida. So a big tree falling back home. Trojans and Sicilians were on their feet, their shouts reaching the sky. Acestes ran out to lift his old friend from the ground. But the great hero was unfazed by the fall and returned to the fight with even more spirit. Here he comes, pumped up by anger, fortified by shame and fiercely proud. He drove Darius all over the arena, hitting him with a right, with a left, pelting him without letting up. Like stinging hail, both fists flying, the hero pounded Darius until he sent him spinning. Ah. Isn't that just, I love the the vision. That's great. Right, left, right, left, left, right. Yeah, it's great. And, um, but then Aeneas has to stop the match. Otherwise, Intellis would have killed Darius. Yes. But what happens to Darius here? Dave, you got that? Yeah, he limps off to the boat, basically. As Krizak says, with weak knees dragging after him, his good friends led poor Darius to the ships, 
propping his ragdoll head that lolled this way and that. Hmm. His mouth spat gore, all clotted with teeth and blood. His friends collected his allotted prize of sword and helmet. <laughs> like a, a toy, maybe? Exactly. Here's like, your sword. Here's, here's, your, your, here's your sword and helmet. That's just, here's your plastic helmet. Have a good time. <laughs> Kiddo, but the palm and bull and Tellus claims, exulting with a heart that's full, winning the beast means glory. God is born, he cries, and Trojans. See how strong I was once? Let your eyes take in the death you spared your Daris. That was all. And then he does something next, which is really incredible. Yes. Then staring in that bullock's face and standing tall. This was the, um, the one with the uh, gold-dipped horns. Yes. Before the matchless prize, he raised his right above that stunning beast and brought down hard the leaded glove. Between the horns, brains scattered from the smashed-in skull, laid out in lifeless spasms on the ground, the bull. Over its battered form, he cries out from the heart, Eryx, for Derry's life, this victim's better barter. Time's champion now, I doff my gloves and end my art. So he sacrifices the, the bull with a, a single blow to the skull. That's right. Crushes the animal's head. So it, it dies in place of Daris. Yes. Right. So I'm killing this instead of killing Daris. Wow. And I'm dedicating it to Eric's. Yeah. The old champion. Man. And what then he's thing. done. He retires. So you go out on top. That's right. That's right. I'm out of here. Leave, leave him wanting more. <laughs> That's right. Right. All right, we got we to gotta move on to the next yes, event, right? Yes, okay. All right, so next up is the archery contest. Now, is this a snoozer? This is a snoozer. How I, do you feel about archery? I, I don't mind archery. I think I find, uh, like, skill with a bow, I find that kind of fascinating. It is fascinating. I, I just found this kind of a strange episode. Right. It, it didn't, I, I think that, um, I think, you know, if, if Virgil, if I were Virgil to rearrange this 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 episode, I put the boxing match last. Oh, so you, now you're going to pull a nettle ship, I, right? Maybe, maybe a, a little nettly here. Yeah, a little Monday morning right. uh, armchair poet and tell because, him how to do his work. Because, and I know I'm looking for it because the the contests really end with uh, the Trojan game. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> we can go through this kind of quickly, but I would like okay. to point out yeah. that I once had the honor of uh, teaching Latin. Uh, to a world-class archeress. You did? Yes, a woman named Jennifer Nichols. I believe she's from the state of Wyoming. Mm -hmm. At one point, she was sixth in the world, sixth in the world in archery. Really? And she was temporarily my Latin student. Wow. And uh, I'm just so thrilled by that because, you know, I admire that kind of athletic excellence. It takes so much dedication and focus and strength. So yeah. I don't know if she is uh, still a competitive archer, uh, but at one time, she was legit. Wow. Was she an Olympian? Or yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She was on the Olympic team. Fantastic. She had the duffel bag and everything. Wow. And uh, I got to teach her some Latin. That's really so cool. That's that really was cool. exciting for me. I basked in that reflected glory. Right. No, I'm a, I am a great admirer of that skill as well. This scene, however, no. I don't know. It, it's anticlimactic after what we've just read. Okay. Can you give us just a few highlights, uh, maybe from... Could, could we liven it up by reading some Latin? Would that make it a little more exciting? Uh, give us a little bit. Sure. Well, since you're so enthusiastic about it, Jeff, yeah. I'll read a couple of lines of Latin. Okay. This is 485. in we tatqui fortawillent et primia dicit, in gentique menu malum de nawa serdresti, erigadet walucrem trajectin funa columbam. Very nicely done. Thank you. <laughs> now let me give you Lombardo's translation Please. of that. He translates, Aeneas now announced the archery contest, invited all comers, and listed the prizes. He set up a mast from Serestus's ship, holding it in one great hand, and tied a dove to a cord suspended from its top. This was their target. The, cont the contestants gathered and threw their names into a bronze helmet. And then we get the list of names of the people, who, mm -hmm. who, uh, uh, including Menestheus, the guy who won the ship race. Catalog poetry, right? Yeah. 
I think I thought that was kind of interesting. So the target is a uh, he's got a mast, right? You got a cord tied to a dove, and the dove's kind of flying around at the top of the and mast. You got to shoot this moving target. Yes, yeah. It's uh, it's got to be a very light cord, right? And yeah, it, it can't be very long because the dove is a, not a large bird. Mm-hmm. Couldn't drag this cord around, right? right. Um, yeah, moving target, very difficult, very difficult, right? You do any shooting sports? I I had a, a grandfather. Uh, who uh, I shot skeet with. Okay. And I always thought that was a lot of fun. It I, is fun. I never... yeah, those clay pigeons? Yes. Right. Great fun. Mm-hmm. Great fun. Um, never did much bow shooting. No. How about you? I did some bow shooting when I was young. I had a um, a recurve, right? I have never was a successful hunter with yeah. it. Uh, but I did a fair amount of archery practice shooting. Enjoyed it a lot. Hmm. Damaged a lot of hay bales. Oh, I bet you did. <laughs> so um, so they, they, they take turns firing at this thing. Um, let's see, and Eurydion, uh, one of the contestants, he's the one who shoots the dove and it falls to the ground. But, and so you would think, okay, he's the clear winner, right. contest over, but what happens next? Well, what happens next is the surprise, yes. and that is Acestes, right? Mm-hmm. And so he shoots an arrow into the air and it bursts into flame. And uh, there's, no, um, there's no logical reason for this thing to burst into flame. So it's clearly a divine omen. Right. Um, I think Virgil even says that... Uh, it's a mystic portent in days to come, as right. Lombardo translates it. But that also kind of puzzled, oh, of what? Uh, what is this? I mean, does this? I can't think of where this comes back. Comes into play later on? Yeah. Um, and I thought maybe could it be, um, you know, in, in a dark way, kind of foreshadowing the burning of the ships that comes a, a few uh, lines maybe. later? Maybe. I think it's that Acestes is going to become a famous Sicilian and the founder of that town, Agesta. Is that, is that what's that's The what's best I can it? come okay. up with. Maybe a more um, learned... Listener, more learned in uh, Virgilian, Virgiliana, can tell us. Can I tell us, know. right. Um, but uh, Ver- Aeneas feels compelled that um, even though Eurydian shot the bird uh, because of this omen, Acestes should get the, the first prize. And Eurydian agrees. He, right. steps, he says, that's fine. He, yep. he backs off. So this is how Acrezac takes it. His arm, I'm uh, sorry. He hugged Acestes full of joy. This is Aeneas. Then filled his arms with gifts. Take these. Olympus, Olympus's king has willed you special honors, father, as this sign has shown. And you shall have such prizes for your very own. As venerable Anchises once possessed, a bowl bestowed on him by the Thracian Cisseus, the whole work chased with figures. Thankfully for you, it doesn't go into an elaborate description <laughs> of what those figures are, because we know you don't like the ekphrasis. I, I like a good ekphrasis, but All I right. mean, it's, you, enough is enough already. All right. As right. a pledge of amity and fit memento from his friend. Gotcha. So, Acestes gets a bowl with a chaste edge. Mm. A chaste edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Like you put Cheerios in there, maybe popcorn, <laughs> right? ice cream on a Saturday evening. An all-purpose chaste bowl. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And then what comes next? This, to me, this is the, this is the big anti-climax. Oh, it's the Trojan game. It's a, it's, the, it's, the, it's a parade. It's not even a, it's not a competition, right? No. It's a lot of strutting about in armor and, and riding on horseback. Yeah. It's not the, it's not sorry. It's not trouble. It's not life. What game is this? It's not even the un-game. Uh. <laughs> It's the Trojan game. Right. It's like, oh, I know what game it is. It's apples to apples. You Never know, the played game, that. The, oh, it's the game that you can't lose and you can't win. Oh, I hate those kinds it, of games. That's what this is. I want a game with a clear winner. Yeah. Who's carried around the room on people's shoulders and a clear loser. Exactly. Right? Who, who is jeered and laughed at. That's right. And uh, <laughs> sulks away to his ship with his ragdoll head like exactly Darius. Right. So what, what we end here with kind of, again, everybody wins because nobody loses kind of... Um, Marshall display, mm-hmm. right? I think it's 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 um, the point of it is to put get Euless back into the action. I think so, right? He's going to feature pretty prominently at the end of this book. It's true. Mm-hmm. Yep, but we see Euless in uh, in armor 
And on horseback, he's riding a horse, Virgil tells us, that Dido gave to him. Now, let's clarify this because the yeah. audience may not be familiar with this character, Ulysses. Yeah. Well, Ulysses is, is Aeneas' son. It's Ascanius. Ascanius. Who's going to undergo a name change and allow him then to be the great ancestor of Julius. Right. You see how they sound similar? Ulysses, Julius. I hear it. You got it? I got it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Krizak, Aeneas tells the crowding throng to heed his orders. Stand back, clear the field, and let the boys ride in. Their well-squared ranks gleam in their father's eyes as bridles shine. Trinacrians and Trojans hummed approval as they passed, hair crowned with garlands trimmed correctly. Each boy bears an iron-fitted spear of Cornell. That's a kind of uh, mountain cherry, I understand. Okay. Some sling polished quivers. Others wear a golden torque high up around their collars where it wraps its pliant, twisted rings. Nicely done, Mr. Krizak. Yeah, but I'm, like, st- you, I'm not impressed by the the scene. You like a good parade? I, I'm not a huge parade guy. You like I little mean, parades? I, I like you know if they're chucking candy in my direction, I'll pick it up. Yeah. But I don't need you know the marching bands and the politicians and. Maybe I'm the only one who feels this way, but I feel as though parades are a relic of a bygone era. Oh. When there wasn't much on Netflix, right? So people pour out into the street to watch other people walk by. Yeah. I don't, I don't find it entertaining. I know. I don't either. There's some comedian who has a, a bit about, you know, enjoying a parade by starting at the end and running against the parade. And it's like you're fast forwarding the parade. <laughs> <laughs> that I could get into. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, no, I'm not a huge fan of the parade. So, But but this is kind of, it's a mock battle. They yeah. do some kind of jousting. Uh-huh. But I think the point is, is, is you were mentioning kind of Aeneas kind of coming of age after kind of, you know, uh, as they're celebrating the, the funeral of his father. I think Ulysses too. We see him in military gear for the first time, right. and it, I think it makes the the reader uh, ask, "Well, okay, how old is this kid? He's also got to kind of carry the mantle of his father He's now." Twelve, thirteen. That's that's it. He seems okay. much younger when the story begins. He seems like a toddler, really, because he's on Dido's lap. Yes, right. And so that I was, I was trying to picture, you know, this some kind of like a first grader on a on a horse. Right? No, I, no, <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> but he's the son of a hero and the grandson of a goddess. So yeah. the typical kinds of chronology and biology don't apply. So he hit his growth spurt fairly early. Well, I'm just saying yeah. we're asking questions of the epic that the poet doesn't really right, care exactly. about. We don't need. Yeah, we we shouldn't ask them. No. Yeah. So what happens next when they trot out here on their ponies? Well, I mean, there's so much trotting and ponying. Oh, come on, Jeff. I, I want to talk about this. Can I read a little bit of the Krizak? Okay, All please. right. Three mounted groups formed out of double quarry all rode in. Their troops behind three captains, each resplendent in detached formations. Well, I'm sure they were resplendent. <laughs> formations all with leaders uniformly matched. You know, for someone who hates parades as much as I do, yeah. I'm really enjoying reading this. <laughs> One happy battle rank is led by Little Priam. Who carries on your line his famed grandfather's name, Polites, forebear of today's Italian race. He's mounted on a dappled white-flecked horse from Thrace. Seems more and more like a fashion show, doesn't it? Is, it is totally a fashion show, right. Or the, the it always strikes me also kind of the uh, the annual, or, you know, back in the, the Soviet Union. Right. You know, the May 1st, the tanks and missiles yes. parade, right? Yeah, and the Moskvas coming out right. into Lenin Square there. Yeah. But it is it is an opportunity for Virgil to kind of look forward now, so because it's not about Anchises anymore, it's not certainly not about Dido. It's about where this whole thing is going, mm-hmm. and so I think it anticipates Book Six and the vision and the visit to the underworld, where we get a true vision of kind of uh, the Rome to come. Well said. Right? You pulled a lot of meaning out right. of that. Okay. Incredibly, even though what they're doing is riding around on tiny motorcycles like the Shriners. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. So it's a ridiculous image, but it points to something fairly right. deep. Right. People are holding their corn dogs. And, and cotton candy. <laughs> right. And so Virgil tells us that the Romans uh, to this day will play this Trojan game. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in, in Lombardo's translation, they call this game 
Troy, <laughs> or they call it the Trojan Troop. Yeah. Right. And it's the Ludi Troiani, right? Right. It's celebrated each year in Rome. Some uh, apparently vague historical connection to Troy. Right. So, and and uh, Virgil is capitalizing on that. Yes, exactly. He's pointing. He's pointing towards Augustus. A little bit of fan service. Right. But when this ends, the games, the fun and games, are over. That's right. And Virgil tells us, then fortune shifted, mm. and now it gets dark. Oh, I like the change in your dulcet tones. Thank you. So now the next big set piece. Yep. Juno conspires to burn the ships of the Trojans and trap them in Sicily. Anything to keep them from Italy, the the boot of Italy, I should say. That's right. Yep. Even though she knows it's fated that Aeneas will win in victory, she's going to try to interfere with fate and uh, stop the ladies in their El Camino exactly. so that it doesn't roll on. That's right. So even if the fate comes true, we're going to make it as painful as possible. Exactly. So what's her plan? So she sends uh, Iris down, the goddess of the rainbow. Mm-hmm. He's kind of your, your feminine counterpart to Mercury, okay. right? Okay. And she disguises herself as an old woman, Beroe, and she starts uh, telling the, the old women there, he says, uh, um, you know, we're just going to pack up and move again. When right. is this ever going to end? Right. Why can't we just build the city here? What's wrong with this? Akesis right. is taking this in. Let's stop here. And uh, to make sure that we stop here, let's burn all the ships. <laughs> I think there's a little bit of um, gender-based comedy here. You think so? Yes, I do, because there is a type, you know, of the guy who really, really wants to make it far on the trip. Right, we're leaving at 6 a.m. Yeah, and we're not stopping until we get you know past Nashville. Maybe we'll even make it to Atlanta. No bathroom breaks. No bathroom breaks. We're just gonna you know. What's the big hurry? Well, we gotta get there. We gotta make good time. Making good time. Making good time. Yes. Right. And sometimes the wife, the mom, uh, is saying, "Well, can we stop for lunch? Yeah. The kids need to stretch their legs. Can they run around the you know the rest area? No. No, we gotta go. We're making good time. So this is a familiar trope, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah. And it's playing on maybe some of the not entirely unbased. See how I qualified that? I hear it. Uh, some of the not entirely unbased gender stereotypes yeah. of men wanting to accomplish things, even if they're trivial things. Right. And women caring more about people's feelings and needs. Ah. Okay. Stereotype. Yeah. No, I, I see that here. So do, do you, are you seeing a kind of dark comedy in this or just kind yes, of... Yes, I am. Okay, all right. A little bit, all right. right? So the the appeal that Juno makes to the women through Barrowy uh, is one that, you know, lands because there's some truth to it, mm. right? What are they concerned about? They're off there with their sports and their athletics and they're pounding each other with their, you know, their boxing gloves and so forth. But meanwhile, the needs of the women and children... Are largely on the shelf. That's right. That's right. And Virgil's, I think, astute enough to see here's an opportunity to advance the plot and entertain the audience. Yeah, because it resonates. It's with, a good. It's a great scene. Yes, it is. So a woman named uh, Pirgo. Pirgo, which is like fire gal, right? I, I think she's the flooring person, isn't she? <laughs> the flooring person. <laughs> isn't that a brand of high quality laminate flooring? Pirgo, install it yourself. Right. So she sees through the disguise because she says, "I just saw uh, Barraway." You know, ten minutes ago, this is not uh, this is not her. Right. And then I, uh, Iris reveals herself, and the women become terrified, and they because see, it's a divine visitation. A divine visitation. So they see this is kind of sanctioned, and they start uh, getting fire everywhere they can find it from from cooking hearths, uh, fireplaces to altars, and they start to torch the ships. Mm. Right. Um, and this is what the then the men discover to their horror that the the fleet is on fire. Yeah. So I thought it was striking that the the women do to their own ships what the Trojans could never due to the Greeks during mm. the whole of the Trojan War. Yes. And so... Um, Another historical resonance that I don't think we really have time to develop, but I think is, is significant, is that in that first Punic War, right, between Romans and Carthaginians, major uh, naval defeat 
of the Romans at Japonum. Oh yeah, right, right off the coast of where this takes place. Oh my goodness, Some, something like um, something like uh, a thousand ships, two hundred fifty men on each. Some enormous number of casualties. Yeah, and the Romans had to rebuild the entire navy from scratch. Right, which they did in something like eighteen months. Wow, and and thereupon defeated the Carthaginians. But this huge naval battle and the destruction of ships would have had a kind of suggestiveness for a Roman audience. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I do wish we had time to kind of explore that further, but we don't, we got to keep moving. That's right. So, um, Aeneas prays to Jupiter. Jupiter sends a soaking rainstorm, which puts out the, the fires and, and only a few ships were, were lost. And, um, on the advice of his, uh, of uh, a guy named Nautes, he says, listen to Aeneas, he says, let's leave the people who want to stay. Let's leave the, the, the infirm, the elderly, the weak behind. Um, Acestes will take them in and maybe leave as many behind as, as those lost ships would have held. Okay. And that's the, the I guess, the compromise that struck. Right, right, right. So while you were talking so eloquently, I double-checked on some of my facts and figures for this battle I was describing. Yeah. And like many ancient historians, I grossly exaggerated oh. the numbers. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was 249. It was off Draponum, right? Modern-day Trapani. Uh, but somewhere between 100 and 130 ships went down, 20,000 men. Killed or captured. Wow. Okay. Still a big number. That's huge. That's, but it's not the numbers that I had originally. Right, right, right. Right. Still very, very interesting. Yes. And uh, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot more of those kind of those resonance to that. I think so. That, um, that we've probably missed along the way too. Right. And that maybe even um, all individuals would miss because there's not enough information about the location yeah. available today. Exactly. So what plays out next after Nauti says, leave in Sicily, you know, as many as the destroyed ships would have carried. Right. And uh, then the fire is doused, right? Mm -hmm. Because of uh, piety on the part of our man Aeneas. Yes. And how does this play out? Exactly. Well, he um, the uh, so Ju Jupiter puts the puts the the, the ships out. Right? Okay. And That's just just Deus ex machina, pluvia ex machina, Whoa. rain from the machine. It gets a, it, rain from the machine, right? That's a good band too. Right? <laughs> rain against the machine. There you go. Um, and then he has a vision of his father. Okay. And Anchises shows up, and basically tells him it's very short, but he tells him. Um, you need to come to the underworld. Okay. And you can see me, he says, I'm not in, I'm not flitting around like Achilles in book 11 of the Odyssey. I'm in Elysium. Right. And you need to come. You the need land to, of the blessed. Says, you need to come and see this. Right. And you're going to get, you're going to meet me again, but you're also going to get to see, get to see where you're going, where all of this is going. Yes. A lot of important information for the completion of your adventure. Exactly. Your quest. Exactly. There's yeah. one little final detail though, before we say goodbye to book five. Which is? And descend into the underworld of book six. And that is... The much-anticipated death of Palinurus. Right. So he's Palinurus is the helmsman. Correct. Um, uh, we see him at the uh, at the beginning of this book. He's the guy that does the steering. Yep. Right. He's the one that got them safely to Sicily, and, mm -hmm. and but he is he's the sacrifice. In, right. In the end here. So how, Dave, how does this play out? So as we were saying at the very beginning of the book, remember he's standing on the deck. They're leaving Sicily, and the storm is raging, and he right. he says, uh, "This doesn't look good. This doesn't bode well for what we're doing." They arrive safely in Sicily, and then at the very end of Book 5, basically he's tossed overboard because of a conspiracy of Neptune. Yes. All right, Dave, can you read the last three lines of the book? Yes, right. So this is 869 through 871. Multagamens casu quanamum concusus amici, o nimium caelet pelago confisa sereno, nudus in igno ta palinurra jacebis harena. Very nice. Thank you. And Lombardo translates this. Is that when Aeneas sensed the ship was drifting without its master, he steered it himself through the midnight wave, sick at heart, lamenting the loss of his friend. O oh, Palinurus, you trusted the sea's calm too much, 
and now your corpse will lie naked on an unknown shore. Mm, not very sad. So he's picked up and scooped and tossed into the ocean, his yeah. body lost, unburied. Yep. So um, this very light, fluffy book ends on this very dark note. Yes, a very grim note. Right. Now, as we mentioned in a previous episode, Aeneas will meet his friend Palinurus in the underworld. Yeah. So it is an homage to Odysseus and Elpinor, mm-hmm. but with some very significant differences, namely that his his loss is discovered immediately. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that Aeneas has a lot more compassion and affection for this fellow than Odysseus has for Elpinor. Oh, without a doubt. Odysseus doesn't care about Elpinor. Not at all. Right, not at all. Doesn't, no. Barely knows the guy. Right. right. So here's where, you know, for all of his blandness, his vanilla nature... Aeneas is a more appealing character. He is. He cares about others. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we'll watch that further develop. Okay, right? in book six. Yep. Well, Jeff, we got to get out of here, don't we? We do. And as always, we got people to thank. Yes. Uh, Mishka for um, all the hard work she does putting this together. Yes. Uh, to uh, Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin for the great music. Great music. Yep. Check out their websites. If you want to learn some guitar like Scott or how to sing like Ken, you can find their names online pretty easily. Yep. Um, and if you want to fill that uh, that gaping hole in our shout-outs, uh, yes. uh, write to us. You can write to Dave, Dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Right. You can also check out my Latin program, latinperdiem.com slash LLPSI. If you want to learn how to read and translate Latin like Jeff and I do, this is a, a great place to start. Fantastic. And so, Dave, what are we doing next week? Uh, next week, uh, we're going to launch into book six. One, my favorite book. Yes. yes uh, I love the this. Descent to the un- Underworld. Right. We'll do at least Katabasis. We'll do at least one or two episodes on book six before maybe we take a break. Yeah. Give the audience a little bit of variety. In the meantime, they're going to want to pick up an ad nauseum t-shirt. Yep. Or maybe a t-shirt that has a nice uh, Greek vase image on it and says underneath "Quai no kent do kent." Yes. Which means which uh, what doesn't uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's correct. Right. What, Be your own intellus, in yes, other words. Yes. What what harms teaches. That's yes. right. Yep. So I think that uh, that pretty much wraps it up, doesn't it, Dr. Winkle? It does. I believe I have the gustatory parting shot this week. Yes, you do. I like this one. Let's hear it. This is from the great Jerry Seinfeld. All right. He says, how about that seedless watermelon? What an invention. Scientists are working on this. Other scientists devote their lives to fighting cancer, AIDS, heart disease. These guys go, no, I'm focusing on melon. Oh, sure. Thousands of people are dying needlessly, but all this seed spitting has got to stop. You ever try and pick a wet one up off of the floor? It's almost impossible. <laughs> I'm devoting my life to that. So I guess if they can get rid of the seeds, the rind is going next. What do we need that rind for? Get rid of the rind. They're not going to stop until they're making in the ground, ready to eat fruit cups growing right out of the ground. Jerry Seinfeld. Yes. Very funny. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.